the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Coble. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have Steve joining us today. Lifeway just put out a poll uh, that is right up our alley. It says this, U.S. pastors' greatest need. What are They polled us pastors and said, what are the greatest needs that you have? And, and I'll run through some of them uh, and then tell you what number one is. Uh, it went this way. Number two was fostering connections with unchurched people. So saying we as pastors, we don't really know how to how to have connections or community with people not in our churches or not in churches. Uh, number three was people's apathy or lack of commitment. Uh, number four was our consistency and personal prayer, fellowship and friendship with others. And it continued to go down the list. I see things like stress and time management on here. Uh, but number one, Steve, which I found fascinating, the poll found that 77% of these pastors, American Protestant pastors who were surveyed, said that their number one issue is, quote, developing leaders and volunteers. I wouldn't have thought that that would have came number one. Does that surprise you that that was the number one answer of, of needs for pastors? Yeah, that, that does surprise me. I thought you were going to say friendship. Uh... I did, too. Yeah. And uh, well, why would you say friendship? That's an interesting take right there, because friendship comes in at number three and then uh, uh, some things like it come later. But why would you have guessed friendship? Yeah, I, I just meet a lot of pastors that seem like they're struggling with loneliness. And even some of my mentors uh, have turned into more of friends because I think of the nature of the vocation itself. Right. So I I just see a lot more people wanting to partner, people wanting to have connection, pastors wanting community for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Why is that so hard for pastors? Because we talk about that on the show all the time. Uh, in fact, Alan Noble, who was on the show uh, a couple months ago to talk about a book of his, uh, he tweeted the other day that I'm convinced that people over the age of 40 don't have actual friends. Uh, <laughs> and that created a little bit of a hubbub. But I think it's actually uniquely a, a struggle for pastors. Uh, but most people out there who are listening who aren't pastors might be like, why is that the case? Why? How would you explain that to people? Well, I, I think that there's a uniqueness to the to the vocation itself. I think that for some people, they they can't separate pastor and friend. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to have friends in your own congregation. And I think that you know some pastors have been burnt by people who were their were their friends and they were in their church and um, they just didn't take seriously the 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 level of connection and, and the the seriousness of that relationship. So you feel like you have to have boundaries with people who are in your congregation. And and I think that the nature of the work itself just lends itself to uh, a bit of isolation where yeah. you're caring for everybody else, uh, but not too many people are caring for you. Yeah, I've shared this story before. Uh, I was in a pastor's group, like there was probably five or six of us around a table. Uh, I don't know, this is probably six, seven years ago. 
Uh, my church was pretty young. It was pretty new still at that point. Probably, you know, I've been here for five years or so. And uh, we got in an argument around the table about whether you can be friends with people in your church. Mm. Uh, and I was one of the only people around the table who's like, I said, not only do I think you can, I said, if I can't, then I'm not sure I want to be a pastor. Like, I'm not sure yeah. I want to do this. And they were all like, they almost gave me like the, oh, you'll learn <laughs> like yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of speech. And if I'm really honest with you, I still want to be friends with people in my church. And I do still have some good friends in my church. But like you mentioned, I've been burned now uh, a handful of times by people I thought were really good friends in my church. And then they left and I haven't never heard from them again yeah. or that kind of stuff. And it's hard. It is uh, it is a difficult, difficult thing. And it's kind of the, one of the reasons kind of your best bet is to try to find friends also outside of your church in your neighborhood or whatever else. What about this developing leaders and volunteers? Why do you think uh, people would say that that's number one? Uh, and and where would that be on your list? Is that something that you feel like, okay, I've, I, I, this is a great need for me? Yeah, I'm I'm curious about that because, um, you know, I'm curious if the article is, is in reference to like church and COVID um, because I, I, I do know some, some pastors who have kept their membership up and their mm. membership meetings up, but then their small group community is literally non-existent. Mm. Um, and one, one, and I actually had this conversation with a pastor in the city and that their giving stayed uh, stable, their membership stayed stable, but the community side of things, the small group side of things just completely dissolved. And so most of the work of the ministry of caring for the people was placed back onto the pastor. Mm -hmm. And so I think that maybe for younger churches and younger, um, younger demographics, that's, that's a little easier. Um, we, we've had the blessing of, of just having great small group leaders and people who understand the vision of, of an importance of community and still trying to make sure that they're a part of that. And so, um, by God's grace, like, I guess we, we mm. cast vision around that, but then also like, we've got people who are willing to say, Hey, we'll meet in person one week, but then we're going to meet on zoom the rest of the, right. the rest of the month. So, and, and those things have worked and certain people fell off, but we, we still were able to maintain a good group of, of leaders and created a leadership pipeline and stuff like that. And I, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but, <laughs> go for it. But I just feel, I feel like uh, I've talked to other pastors and that's been something that they're, they're struggling with. And for whatever reason, our, our folks have been able to pivot to this online thing and say, all right, this is, this is a part of me being a part of the ministry. So I, th I think the younger demographic might shift that a little bit. Yeah. Good for you guys, man. Because I do think that that's not the norm right now. I think a, a lot of churches and pastors have struggled uh, with that. It's interesting to look at the rest of the list. What do pastors say that they most need? A lot of just personal health stuff, exercise, stress, mm -hmm. uh, taking a Sabbath, personal disciple making, uh, all of this stuff, time management. So a really interesting look. It gives a window into maybe what your pastor out there is feeling. Yeah. What do they see as their greatest need? And, and I do. I resonate with a lot of these. I think this was uh, this was really good. Well, coming up next. Uh, Steve and I are going to have the opportunity to talk to John Hopper. We're going to talk to him about his book called Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. John Hopper is going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I uh, hope that you're having a wonderful afternoon. And Steve and I are thrilled to be joined by the author of a new book called Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. His name, the author of that book's name is John Hopper. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great to be with you, Brian. Yeah, it's absolutely good to have you with us. Hey, before we jump into the book, which uh, I think we told you that Steve and I are both pastors and this book looks just wonderful. But before we jump into that, uh, two things I'd like you to do. First, introduce yourself, help our people get to know you a little bit, and then tell us about the book and why you wrote this book. Well, great. Yeah. So I, I work for an organization called Search. And what Search is all about is about meeting people where they're at. So, uh, you know, oftentimes if you're working as a pastor in a church, you're kind of waiting for people to come inside the doors. And search really does the opposite where concentrating on going outside the doors. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, we meet with people uh, in country clubs, inside of businesses, in their homes, whatever the case might be. And of course, along the way, we encounter people's hangups, questions, concerns about God, Christianity, and the Bible. And really, that's the sort of impetus for this book. Search has been at it for a lot of years. And so uh, we we thought we needed a new book that addressed some of the common questions that people ask. And so uh, we we put it together. Hey, John, I'm just thinking of like, man, how do you build those relationships in order to go to the uh, country clubs of the world and do a, a kind of presentation like you're talking about? Yeah. So I, I, the way I like to describe it is I follow every lead. So, I, <laughs> so everybody I I meet, I tend to meet somebody else al- alongside of it. Um, you know, for uh, an example, if, if I'm, I have a good friend who's at a particular fitness club here in Houston, and uh, so I met with him, and he introduced me some people at the fitness club, and then I learned some of their friends of their friends, and before you know it, we've got a large group that meets and, and gathers and talks about that. We just finished going through this book together. And so it really is just uh, um, uh, relational networks, just following every lead and listening really well to people. Wow, that's really fascinating because most people listening to this are probably that sounds really intimidating uh, and really scary. And I know that's part of the reason that you wrote this book. Uh, before jumping to the book, just kind of the, when you talk about now we have a group of men, meaning are you finding people to be more and more interested in talking about spiritual things who may not be part of churches, but but would like to wrestle with these questions? I'm not sure if they're more or less uh, likely to talk about them now than, say, 10 years ago or 20 mm-hmm. years ago. I think people have always been interested in talking about uh, deeper questions of life. They just don't know where they can do it and have a honest, friendly conversation. And so if you can set the table where people feel free, like, hey, I can really ask this question and I'm not going to get pigeonholed, uh, prayed over, preached at, whatever the case might be, <laughs> people start to, to uh, open up and ask another question and another question and it goes from there. John, I'm um- I'm wondering what makes this book uh, different than like a regular apologetics book and who is this book for? Yeah, Steve, that's a great question. So, you know, a, a vast majority of the apologetics books and I and I I've gleaned from literally hundreds of them over the years are, are really addressed to Christians. And they say, hey, Christian, here's how you're to answer this question if you 
you know, uh, I get this question. And you really probably wouldn't hand the book necessarily to a non-Christian. It would almost be an affront because it's it's almost sounding like the 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 person who's not a believer is a project of some sort. And mm. so this book is written as if the reader of the book is the one who actually has the questions. So mm. it's someone who's wrestling with these questions. Now, of course, it's still super helpful to uh, a believer as well, but uh, I think you can hand this book to somebody who is not and yet has these questions and they will feel very sort of comfortable with it. In fact, that's been the feedback so far is that people kind of all across the spectrum in terms of where they are with God or the Bible or Christianity are finding it sort of friendly and accessible and uh, um, uh, not in their face. So I think that's kind of the difference of it. There's, I mean, there's certainly other apologetic books that sort of take that tack, but I, this was very much uh, designed and written in that way. Well, let's jump into some of the biggest questions that people have and uh, would just love to hear you answer them. Let's start with this one. What evidence do we have to know that God is real? How do you even prove that God exists? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so you know, I don't really try to prove anything. I mean, I'm not quite sure what a proof is, except maybe in the mathematical world. I, I think oftentimes in life, what we're doing is we're looking at evidence and we're looking at kind of a preponderance of evidence. And so that's what I do in the book is I, I present some different evidences. So, um, you know, one of the, the common pieces of evidence that you'll certainly find elsewhere as well as in this book is, is sort of the fine tuning of the universe. And you begin to look at some of the uh, physical constants that uh, govern our world, like gravity. And you see that if those constants were just even slightly different than what they are, that there would be no life that would be possible in the universe. And there's dozens and dozens of these constants, and they have to be just remarkably uh, fine-tuned. I'll give you one particular example, um, and I'll do it by sort of way of illustration. Let's suppose my wife uh, was very sensitive to temperature. Like it was 73 in the house, it's too cold, and 74, it's too hot. And so, mm-hmm. boy, I got to fine tune it somehow. And so I sort of rigged the thermostat so it's got, you know, tenths of a degree. And I put it 73.4 and it's still too cold, 73.5, it's too hot. And so I finally, I rigged the machine where it, it is able to do a trillion, 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 trillionths of a degree, just slight little adjustments. And finally, I find the temperature that my wife is, is happy at. That's the kind of precision that would be necessary, say, for the adjustment of gravity. Like gravity has to be incredibly fine-tuned so that the planets don't collapse on themselves or, or sort of fly off and sort of never coalesce in the first place. So uh, we begin to look at that fine-tuning and, again, the sort of the dozens of constants that there are, and, we, and, and it seems... Uh, more likely that there's a designer there than that it just would have happened uh, uh, by luck. So that's just one of the pieces of the evidence I provide in the book. I actually provide for the four other pieces of evidence for the existence of God. And, and I think collectively uh, it provides a pretty strong, strong case. John, my, my wife and I were just talking yesterday about uh, there's an uh, Instagram influencer that she really likes in terms of uh, their uh, social commentary and, and on life and different things. And she actually asked a question yesterday that uh, what 
like what is the purpose of life and like what gives life meaning and she just mm-hmm. kind of opened up about her struggle um and then she she acknowledged that some people have um have admitted that religion has been a, a helpful tool for them mm-hmm. um but she describes herself as agnostic or even uh atheistic and so i'm just curious i'm like what would what would john say to her yeah yeah well, I think one of the things that people don't recognize is that if there isn't a God, if we're just here sort of by random chance, then there really isn't any objective meaning or purpose in life. So, for example, if uh, if I'm carrying a box of, of Scrabble pieces and, you know, I kind of bump into the corner of a table and they all spill out on the ground and so the pieces are all on the floor and then you came up to me and you said what's the meaning of those pieces on the floor i said well, what do you mean what meaning it's just kind of what's spilled out of the box mm-hmm. and if you and i are not uh, the result of of a creator a purposeful creator then we're just what's spilled out of the box <laughs> so mm-hmm. and, and there really is no meaning and, and purpose and so I think one of the reasons why people should even consider looking into God if they've kind of felt like, well, I can kind of do without God, is that it takes a God, it takes a creator to give us the possibility of having uh, an objective meaning or purpose, one that we just don't sort of make up on, on our own. That's so good. Uh, the author is John Hopper, and his new book is Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. We're excited that John's going to stay with us. Let's ask the question of science, right? Many people uh, who don't believe in God say it's because of science, that those run against each other. What is your advice when when dealing with that question of God and science? You know, I think my first piece of advice would be to look at what scientists themselves say. So I think sometimes uh, sort of the common person on the street does sort of create this divide between uh, belief in God and, and science. And yet scientists themselves aren't necessarily saying that. Of course, we can we can point to sort of famous scientists of old, whether it be Kepler or Bacon or Galileo or whatever, but we, and we can also look to sort of modern scientists. But, but even more than that, we can look to surveys like, for example, uh, uh, there's a, a gal in Houston at Rice University, Elaine Howard Eklund. She's a distinguished professor there, and she's done extensive research on what scientists believe about religion. And she's done so with scientists at the top research universities around the world. So these aren't, you know, community college uh Professors, these are uh, the scientists at the top research universities in the world, and only 15% of them believe there is an inherent conflict between science and religion. Mm. Now, if that's the case, if scientists themselves aren't seeing an inherent conflict, then I'm not so sure why the person on the street should necessarily feel like there's automatically an an inherent conflict. Um, So I think that's kind of where I would start is I would say, you know, Scientists aren't seeing this conflict, so maybe you shouldn't see that, and and that would be a starting place in a conversation. John, I'm I'm thinking of of people in uh, in my family who have had bad experiences with organized religion, hmm. and that has kind of been the thing that has steered them away from God and from um, following Jesus or any any type of really religion outside of 
uh, outside of Christianity at all, like any religion altogether. Um, and I'm just curious what you would say as, as a person who is a part of like, that's my family member. How, how do I come alongside them? How do I support them? And then, uh, what, what should I encourage them to do in light of that, that kind of circumstance? Mm, Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is I'm sorry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sad thing that, um, many people have had such bad experiences with Christians or with the church. And, uh, and, and to be honest, right, I'm sure there have been times where I've contributed to that or I've been unkind to somebody or I haven't represented, uh, Christ well. And so, um, I probably begin in some ways with, with an, an apology of, of sorts. Um, I think also though, I, I would look at, um, sort of idea that, uh, the truth does not sort of hang on the uh, sort of the behavior of the person who might be sharing the truth. So a simple example would be you go to the doctor, your doctor's maybe uh, uh, grossly overweight, and but is lecturing you that it, you would be more healthy if you lost some weight, right? So you're looking at the doctor and you're saying, well, who are you to tell me, right? <laughs> so, um, but in reality, you would do well probably to lose some weight if that would help some health concerns, even if the doctor's own behavior isn't uh, very strong. Or if your doctor told you not to smoke and then you left the doctor's office and you saw him uh, taking a smoke out the sort of the back door of your doctor's office, right? So, um, so in that case, right, it's still worth listening to what they have to say, even if their behavior doesn't match it. And I, and I think that's probably the case, too, is that people... We, we all need to sort of look back sort of beyond the behavior of people, whether they might be uh, sort of atheists or Christians to say, is there truth to this at all? Mm. Because that's what's most important that I that I hang on to. Yeah, that's that's well put. And, John, uh, one of the apologetic questions that I think is one of the biggest hurdles for people uh, is the presence of pain and struggle uh, and just the, the the idea that that even when we follow Jesus, a lot of us get you know we get cancer or a loved one dies or relationships break apart, and there's the idea that how can a good God allow pain and suffering in the world, and so therefore He's either not good or He's not all powerful or whatever else it might be. Uh, how do you answer the problem of pain and the problem of evil? Yeah, well, yeah, con- evil and, and suffering and pain. It's, it's sort of our common fate, right? I mean, certainly mm-hmm. some people seem to get a greater dose than other people, but it's something we all sort of have to deal with. Um, and so there is a question of, you know, where is God? Can really God be all powerful and all good and, and sort of evil and suffering exist? And I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent to believe that uh, there's a good, all powerful God with the existence of pain and suffering. Let me explain it this way. Let's Suppose that uh, you're taking your child in to get a polio vaccine. They're one year old, so they love you. They're holding on to you. You hand them to the doctor, and then suddenly there's pain that's experienced by the child, right? Mm. So um, you love your child. You didn't take them there thinking, okay, let's see if they can experience some pain today. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, you also had the power to not take them there in the first place, and yet, you still allowed that 
pain to come upon the child because they're sort of overriding greater concerns. Now, um, you can't really explain that to the child who's only one. You could try to, but they're not going to understand it. Mm. And I do think there are times where God allows suffering in our lives um, because there are greater overriding concerns that, frankly, we can't understand at this point in time. And so, uh, so that would ex- maybe explain that it's not inconsistent for there to be a good and all-powerful God. That doesn't necessarily make it uh, uh, any easier to, to swallow. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's important also to understand in regards to this question is that um, God needed to, um, if he wanted to really build a relationship with us, he had to sort of risk us not walking in the way that he wanted to. He could have made us all robots where we all did exactly what he wanted to do and sort of the world stayed perfect. But if that was the case, he wouldn't have a real relationship with us. Mm. And he sought more than that. But of course, in sort of opening up the possibility that we would disobey him, um, evil and suffering has entered into the world and we've, we've all contributed to it. And, um, I'm glad that God hasn't just said, well, if you contribute to evil and suffering in this world, then I'm going to get rid of you right away. Right. Because if that was the case, we'd all be done. Right Absolutely. Now. Absolutely. That's well put. A good answer. John Hopper is the author of a book called Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. You can learn more about John and his book at questioninggod.com. That's questioninggod.com. And also learn more about Search Ministries at searchnational.org. That's searchnational.org. John, thanks so much. This was wonderful. Thanks for spending so much time with us. Great. Great to be with you too, Brian Steve. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And as we've mentioned many times here on the show, I'm a pastor. Aubrey, who's normally here, is a pastor. Steve, filling in today. Steve's a pastor. And so uh, that's kind of the way we view the world. Uh, this is kind of, this is our passions. This is what we do. And, and so pastoral health and longevity is something that is often on our minds. And so when we saw this new book, we, we wanted to talk to the author. This new book is called Don't Blow Up Your Ministry, Diffuse the Underlying Issues That Take Pastors Down. The author of that book is Michael McKenzie. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, uh, let's just talk big picture. Tell us about the book and also why did you write this book? Yeah, you know, I've been ministering to uh, pastors for the last 20 years, and the last 10 years specifically through Marble Retreat, where pastors come for eight days of intensive counseling and sitting with pastors who have just blown up their ministry, their marriages sometimes, and just seeing the regret and the grief, I was like, just um, moved to do something on the more proactive side. So wanted to write this book as kind of a heads up to pastors, like, hey, if you got some brokenness going on in your own life, you need to take care of it because it puts you at risk. There's enough pressure in the ministry, let alone if that starts playing into your personal brokenness that you can be at risk. So that was kind of the heart behind it. It's kind of warning, but hopefully also encouragement and hope for pastors that they can be healthy in ministry. Michael, what are some of the sort of signs that things are getting unhealthy in a pastor's life 
before they come to see you? You know, some of the signs are, are, you know, typically, you know, signs of burnout often, meaning, you know, ideally when you're in ministry, there should be a passion, a joy, um, you know, in doing it, it should be meaningful. And so when it becomes drudgery, you know, you just don't want that, you know, Sunday to come or this meeting or the phone rings and you're like, oh no, I got to answer that. You know, that can happen to all of us on a day we're tired or whatever, but if that's repeated where you just don't want to show up anymore. You just don't, you don't find the meaning, the pleasure, the purpose in it. And that's a warning sign to pastors because pastors do this because they're called, they're passionate, they believe in this role. And if you're losing that passion, you know, that is a red flag. Okay, something is wrong here. Not that we're all going to be, you know, um, super excited every day about what we do because there's always parts of the job. But overall, you know, you find that waning because then re- re- resentment can start coming in. And that's where I find pastors start getting in, into some trouble. Yeah. And uh, so we talk about this on the show sometimes. What, how would you help people understand out there who are not pastors some of the why this is an issue, some of the unique pressures or or struggles that pastors face and why this is such a big deal? Yeah, you know, there's lots of ways to conceptualize that. One is, you know, that I talk about is you're always on as a pastor. I'm sure you guys have talked about this a lot. You know, we really take it on as our identity, and there's good in that. This is our calling, you know, all those things. Yet, it's hard to check out. So pastors are always on, you know, and so there's it's harder to draw those natural boundaries between when you leave work and come home, work is at work, and, and home is at home. And so that's definitely one one of the ways that, that being in ministry can wear you down is never really clocking out. You know, every time you hear the text, every time you, you know, get the phone call, you expect it to be ministry related and you're on again. Michael, I'm curious just because I've had some experience with um, with leaders who were unwilling to submit to authority, leaders who just seem to be in a an emotionally unhealthy space and mm. just coming off of listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and mm-hmm. some of the narcissistic tendencies that m- might be there in, in some leaders. Uh, what have you seen uh, or what are some things that like show up to say, Hey, this is an issue. You need to get help. And, and how do we help those people? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard in, in the sense of, you know, we, we have the privilege at Marble Retreat that most people have hit a crisis, so they're motivated. You know, something has blown up, and so they're motivated, like, I'm in, I'm in trouble, I need help, and so we have had the kind of privilege of that opening, that door is open for us, but you're right, many folks, you know, and, and this is true of human nature, you know, we, we don't get help, ask for help until we have to. But I find some of the things that are helpful, you know, if a pastor begins getting really short with staff, you know, they're just, you know, they're they're aggravated, they have no patience, all those kinds of things. You know, as we have known in some of these situations, that is happening and nobody is saying anything. And what I find is often, you know, it takes the, the people who actually have influence, leverage in the pastor's life, speaking to them and calling them to account saying, you cannot have this kind of attitude with staff. But often that doesn't happen because the pastor has kind of got themselves in this position of kind of authority over everybody and nobody is calling them on, on some of those things. So it's really important. Like when we have a spouse call us, for example, a pastor's wife saying, 
you know, we need help. Marriage is falling apart. Things are awful at home. But, but my husband, in this case, being the pastor, won't come for help. You know, often it takes like the elders or somebody higher up in the denomination to speak to that pastor saying, look, you need to get help because it has to be somebody with some leverage, you know, to really get their attention because otherwise it'll just keep going as is. Yeah. Uh, and you said that you guys uh, work at and run the Marble Retreat in Colorado. I'm curious, what do you guys do there? So a pastor comes to the Marble Retreat, has basically torpedoed life, ministry, everything. What does the restoration or the healing process look like for you guys at the Marble Retreat? Yeah, you know, the way it's just an oversimplification, but folks come in, they have three days of counseling, then they have the weekend off, and then three more days of counseling. And we kind of call it three days of deconstruction and three days of reconstruction. So the first three days, largely, but what's the story? What's going on here personally and in your context? What happened? They got to this point, because the first question every pastor has is, how did this happen? Why? I never anticipated having an affair. I never anticipated, you know, blowing up at my staff and needing to be reprimanded, so to speak. I never, you know, I never anticipated getting to this point where I just want to quit. So we peel back the layers, get the whole story, the whole context and all the parts that are at play. And then, you know, we look deeply at the pastor's own brokenness, heart, soul, shame, fear, insecurities, what's going on in them that played in, because it's easy to blame the pressures out there, and those are real and true, but then we begin to work on the pastor themselves, and there's there's always a part of their brokenness that was playing into the mix, and so then we, you know, bring them, you know, through a process of finding healing for their own stuff, which is ironic because they've been providing that for others, yet sometimes have not connected the dots themselves to their own deep brokenness. That's kind of pushing them over the edge to act in ways that um, are detrimental to their well-being and to their ministry. Michael, are there any just specific ways in which uh, a person can create habits that are healthy, that can help them before they get to come to see you? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's lots of material out there. You know, you know, just um, a lot of the spiritual formation practices. You know, there's lots about boundaries. There, there's lots about what are healthy pastors are. I, you know, what I find to be the key. And again, you're talking to a counselor who who deals with pastors who have blown up in some way or in a crisis. You know, so I know I see a biased, you know, population, so to speak. What I see is, is the pastor knows those things. They've been to seminars, they've read them, they know, oh, yes, I should be respecting my time off, and I should be, you know, investing in my marriage, and I should have a hobby, and I should exercise. What they don't know is what is their own personal brokenness that keeps them from doing that, that I have to be successful, I have to not say no, I have to put in 80 hours, that kind of thing. And so that's what, you know, and again, you're getting a counselor's take on it, but that's what I see is the key piece that's missing is them not fully realizing, okay, I know those things I should be doing, but I'm not. And I can blame it on, you know, all the expectations of the church, which is a piece, but what is my own piece in that? Why do I continue to say yes and not say no? So to answer your question, you know, I think there's lots of great things out there, you know, going back to a celebration of discipline or, or whatever to help us have a good rhythm in our life, you know, but I think the key question is how come I'm not doing those things? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Michael McKenzie, he's a licensed professional counselor, ordained pastor, and served for 10 years as the clinical director of Marble Retreat out in Colorado. You can uh, check out his book and other books. Uh, the new book, Don't Blow Up Your Ministry, Diffuse the Underlying Issues That Take Pastors Down. You can find that at Amazon or wherever it is that you get your books. You can also learn more about the Marble Retreat at marbleretreat.org. That's marbleretreat.org. Dot org. Michael, it's been great, man. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, thank you guys so much. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Coble. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have Steve joining us today and tomorrow as Aubrey Sampson is out. Uh, for the rest of the week, glad to have Steve with us. Steve, why don't you remind people who maybe are just tuning in, what do you do and uh, where can they find you if uh, if they want to go to your church? Yeah, absolutely. We're Renewal Church of Chicago. We're a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, disciple-making church, just a stone's throw away from the United Center. And I am a, a pastor of teaching, spiritual formation, and discipleship there. Awesome. And uh, also an Indianapolis Colts fan. And so still licking your wounds from this past week. <laughs> sorry, that was uh, that was probably unfair. I'm just happy my team, the New York Giants, since you and I last talked, we fired our coach. Oh, did they? Yeah, they did. They out of the blue, they went and fired him, too. So, uh, I, you know, it's like the Bears fans out here. The, the hope of something new, even though it could be worse, <laughs> still this hope of something new uh, that might be out there. So. Uh, yeah, excited for that. Okay, Steve, remind me, uh, did you grow up in the church? I did not. So we were nominally Catholic. I went to Catholic elementary school, kindergarten through fifth grade, and then went to public school after that. So we were Christers, Christmas and Easter folks. <laughs> um, and then probably by the third grade, we were Christmas only. <laughs> Take it off Easter. Uh, and then I, I became a follower of Jesus through Campus Crusade for Christ Ministries, uh, the impact movement when I was in college. Oh, that's outstanding. We're going to hear some more of that story. Uh, another time I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain on that. But uh, so here, so maybe if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you don't remember. Do you remember uh, in the 90s, this everyone would wear these bracelets that would say WWJD? Do you, any recollection of that? Yeah, totally. All right. So the what would Jesus do movement uh, that was really kind of if, if you're going to go top three, top five, mid 90s evangelical subculture things, uh, the, the WWJD bracelet uh, was a big deal. But you might remember back then it got uh, a lot of pushback because eventually you start having theologians and pastors saying that's a huge burden for people to carry. Uh, because saying what would Jesus do kind of misses the point that we can't always just do what Jesus did. He was Jesus, and uh, maybe this isn't helpful. And so uh, you had some people who would ask jokingly, what did Jesus command us to do and say our bracelet should be W-D-J-C-U-T-D, which probably doesn't work as well, Uh, but kind of more saying, you know, who is Jesus asking us to be? What is he asking us to be? You might be asking why I'm asking this. Well, uh, Shane Morris at the Gospel Coalition just penned an article this week entitled In Defense of WWJD. And he says, insisting that Jesus isn't our ultimate example because we can't do all the things he did confuses his character with his calling that 
uh, he does want us to kind of mirror our lives after him and strive to do uh, what he has done. And so uh, let's start there, Steve, the asking people the question, what would Jesus do as kind of a, a lens through which to view our own lives? Helpful, unhelpful? What do you think about his argument here? Well, I mean, in general, I, I've always had that that question because I remember I, I think we were discussing this when I was a young uh, Christian in in Bible college or something like that. And it was kind of that perspective of like, uh, we're calling people to do stuff that they can't actually do um, because they can only do it through the, through the power of grace. And, and so I get that. But it, I think sometimes when it comes to uh, different seasons of, of society and culture, like this feels like a time when we need to bring back some WWJD. <laughs> uh, we need to bring back some compassion and we need to bring back some civility and some, uh, some charity. And so, um, I understand the, the sentiment theologically, but, but at the same time, I think there is, um, an important application side, uh, to things. And when you see things through the lens of the gospel of grace, like it does still make sense because the call is still to, to follow Jesus. Yeah. Shane Morris is the writer of this article. It's up at the Gospel Coalition. Let me just read a little bit of what he said uh, as we kind of push this ball forward. He says, the reason we are right to ask what would Jesus do is that Jesus came not only to serve as a sacrifice for sin and to issue moral commands, but to personally embody and restore the image of God in man. That is also why the incarnation matters so much. Christ's role as the last Adam means he has given us a renewed way of being human. It makes sense to model our lives after Christ because he, in the truest possible sense, Christ lived our kind of life and he openly invites us to imitate his obedience. It turns out the younger me wasn't as good a theologian as I imagined and the Christian bookstores weren't always wrong. What would Jesus do, he writes, is a question that should always be at the front of our minds, even if we no longer wear it on our wrists. So Shane Morris's point is like, this is helpful because Christ came and lived the perfect human life and kind of uh, with everything he did, one of the things he did is kind of lead by example. This is what it looks like to live a godly life. This is what it looks like uh, to, to be who we are supposed to be, to live out our calling. Uh, Steve, you've mentioned a couple times, and I can see it at the heart of kind of your ministry is is you know we want to we want to preach grace, not uh, not works. We we want to point people to grace. So how do you walk that line of listen? This is how you're supposed to live. This is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus calls us to live, with also the recognition you're going to fail. Uh, and here's how grace plays into that. How do you pastorally walk that line so that people can understand it? Well, one of, one of the things that I, I like to bring up is uh, what what Jesus says is the Holy Spirit's work in John 15. Uh, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness to me. And so at the foundational level of, of the gospel is this idea that the person and work of Jesus is applied to your life. And so when you do fail, the reminder or the conviction, like sometimes I think people get confused between the voice of conviction and the voice of shame. And mm -hmm. so the voice of conviction um, calls us back to the person and work of Jesus is applied to my life. I couldn't do this in my own strength in the first place, but because of grace and the incredible nature of the supremacy of Jesus's work, like, whoa, that blows me away. 
when that moves me back to um, now I'm motivated to get back up and get after it again, because no matter what I do, God's grace is still sufficient for it because it's not on my shoulders. I'm standing in righteousness. That's not my own. It's a foreign righteousness. And so I try to make sure that that's like what is preached to your heart, like over and over and over and over and over again. And that abiding work, you know, John 15, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but abide in me and I and you and you will bear much fruit. Mm -hmm. In the same passage in John 15, he says, here's the Holy Spirit's work is to apply my work to your life. And so Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit's voice still says you're beloved when you fail. So so that is the engine. That's the like grace is the the thing that pulls your back. Uh, and your shoulders back and your your head up. Mm. And that's the only way that you can actually pursue holiness in a way that's not self-righteous. Yeah, yeah. That's a good word, man. The Gospel Coalition, in defense of WWJD, uh, we can never preach grace enough to one another. That, yes, we're called to live a certain way, but what's it look like when we inevitably fail? What is the engine, as you said, that drives us forward? A real good word there, man. You can find that article up at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, in defense of WWJD. Well, coming up next, uh, we are uh, going to close out today with some words from what many people consider to be one of the greatest preachers of all time, Billy Graham. We're going to listen to some Billy Graham and discuss it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble, who's sitting in for Aubrey Sampson today. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us uh, on this Thursday evening. And as we close out the show, one of the ways that we like to do that is with some encouragement, with something to send you out, something to think and to go about the rest of your day. And with that in mind, I want to bring back just a short sermon clip. It's going to be about two minutes uh, from Billy Graham. Many people uh, consider Billy Graham to be the preacher uh, of the of the 20th century. Like Billy Graham, go back. If you're unfamiliar with him, Google Billy Graham and, and watch some of the stuff that he said. Read some of the things that he did. Uh, and uh, it's it's um, unbelievably impressive. And and in this clip, Billy Graham is exhorting young people. He's talking to youth, uh, but it's such a message for all of us that that I wanted to play. It's essentially the message is this that that we talk about longing for something more. Young people, as they look and they they kind of are spreading their wings, they they want something more than what they've been given. All of us long for something more than, than what we've been given. And Billy Graham's going to give the reason and the solution to that something more. Let's listen to Billy Graham. But young people today are that way. They want instant solutions to problems. And we think we can find satisfaction in our lives, just a little change, maybe moving away from home or getting out from under father and mother or getting away from the old familiar surroundings. Maybe if I could just go to New York or someplace like that, it would be different for me. I'll find the satisfaction that I'm looking for. We're not satisfied with the way we are constructed. We're not satisfied with the way we look. We're not satisfied with the way we live. We're not satisfied with where we live. We're not satisfied with our education. We're not satisfied with our inner self. And there's something lacking and we don't know what it is. 
like the girl that was crying and crying and crying at the university and they couldn't find out what was wrong and finally they brought her parents and she finally blurted out to her father and she said, Father, I want something and I don't know what it is. Most everybody's searching for something and they don't know what it is. Do you know why? Because you were made in the image of God. You were made for God. You have a body, but living down inside of your body is your spirit, your soul, made in the image of God and made for fellowship with God. And that fellowship has been broken by sin. And so inside you're constantly screaming and crying out for something. You're not quite sure what it is. You think you'll find it in drugs. You think you'll find it in sex. You think you'll find it in something else. Power, success, money. It's not there. And you end up with emptiness, still searching. And you're actually searching for God and don't know it. And you'll never find that total satisfaction and peace and purpose and meaning in your life until you have surrendered your life to God. Surrendered your life to Christ. All right, Steve, Billy Graham says the, that we, all, we most definitely do want something more. That's because we were built for eternity. We have kind of this God-shaped hole in ourselves, if you will, that that there's something about uh, us, the way we've been created in the image of God, that the only thing that will satisfy that is God himself in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so therefore, if you want that, not just something more, but if you want the contentment and the hope and the joy that we're all looking for, we're all striving for, that the answer to that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I know, Steve, you believe that with all of your heart, but but help people understand uh, that Jesus is not just the pathway to eternal life, but as you've said earlier in the show, is also the pathway to abundant life here on this earth. Yeah, I mean that's just a, that that's a beautiful, uh, just a beautiful clip, uh, a beautiful idea, a beautiful thought. One of the things that I think that I have struggled with throughout my life as a Christian is being frustrated with myself uh, in trying to find lasting satisfaction, comfort, joy, and peace in things other than God. And, mm. you know, it might it might look like, practically speaking, that, man, I'm back on Amazon again today looking mm. for some random trinket that I that I might need. And, and why do I always feel the need to go back to man, when I get this perfect pair of jeans or when I when I uh, get the perfect uh, kitchen set up, when we remodel this kitchen, then like I, then everything's going to be good. Or when I get that job or when I get out of school or when the kids get it back out of uh, back in school or when, you know, we kind of go on this long laundry list of places where uh, we we look to and to trust in that once we arrive there, we're we're then everything's going to be good. It's going to be the promised land, so to speak. And I think one of the reasons why we do that is because we were created for worship. And so we naturally have this inclination to build our lives on things, to trust in, to find lasting satisfaction, comfort, joy, and peace. And the distinction between those things and God is that those things are created by God. And, mm. and the thing about God is that uh, he is inexhaustible. And so when it comes to experiencing the fullness of life or the good life that Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly, the, the thing that we, we miss out on um, is, is understanding that the inexhaustible nature of our desire, like the desire that keeps going on to try to find the next promised land, 
and it seems like desire is never fully met, like mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing. That's actually a God thing. God gave us that desire. And the only thing that can fulfill that desire, that that un- uh, unending longing is his inexhaustible nature. Um, mm-hmm. We were made for him and, and he is for us. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that that inexhaustible desire, that that frustration that you might have continuing to, to online shop or to. Uh, to look at the vacation resort that's going to get the or the, the scholarship that you know once we get past this, God is is calling us to to turn our attention and our affection uh, to Him and and allow Him to show us the fullness of joy that's in His presence. That's such a good word, friend. Uh, Jesus says in the book of John, I've come to bring life and life to the full. I've come to bring abundant life now. And so many of us think, well, I'm going to follow Jesus so that I get the heaven portion of it. And if that means a worse life here, then so be it. But no, uh, as Billy Graham said, and as Steve just kind of said so well, um, no, this is the doorway, the pathway to what our heart longs for. But unfortunately, so many of us spend so uh, much of our time looking in other directions, heading, looking to other things, man-made things uh, that that were never meant to satisfy us at our core. They were never meant to play that role. And we go our whole life just uh, meandering, going, well, I'm going to look for the next thing. It must be in this next thing. It must be in this next thing. And then we just go, I, I, I never found it. And, and as two pastors here, and as Billy Graham said, the answer to your longing is Jesus and, and a relationship with him and a devotion with him. Uh, and that's how we wanted to leave you today with that ex- exhortation to say, if you've not made that choice in your life, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, uh, then you can do that today. And that is uh, the key to life. That is it right there. Uh, and we pray that for you. Uh, and we'd love for you to be a part of a church. If you're out in the suburbs, you can come join me at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. If you're down in the city, go connect with Steve at Renewal Church of Chicago. You can find his church at RenewalChicago.com. Well, Steve, thanks, man. You're going to be with us one more day. We're get, we'll get to do this again tomorrow. Looking forward to it, man. All right. Same here, man. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back, as I said, again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. For Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.